imagine that you're walking into a doctor's office. Hello, welcome. Please fill out these forms and have your insurance card ready to scan. As you fill out the forms, you notice the options for sex are male and female. Now, if you're a cisgender person, that is, your sex assigned at birth aligns with your gender, you would fill this part out without thinking twice. But for people aware of the difference between sex and gender, or who identify outside the binary, you may be asking, sex assigned at birth or the sex that describes my gender? Another dilemma you may encounter is that during your visit with the doctor, they may assume your sexuality. Do you have a husband? Maybe asked to a lesbian woman who would not date or marry a man. A patient born intersex may feel the need to explain what intersex means to healthcare professionals who should already know that and be prepared to treat patients with such medical histories. Suddenly, you as a patient may feel anxious and may not feel comfortable discussing your personal life and or sexual history without being judged. And if you're a transgender or non-binary patient walking into a clinic, Nothing's worse than to be misgendered as either sir or ma'am in the waiting room. Such are the realities of many LGBTQ plus identifying patients and why in today's episode, we're discussing how LGBTQ plus patient provider health interactions go wrong. In recent times, significant push has been made to collect sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity data, or SOGI data, as well as improve the patient experiences of LGBTQ plus patients in healthcare. Health centers funded by the Health Resources and Services Administration in the United States are required to collect SOGI data to promote culturally sensitive care delivery and help reduce health disparities. Additionally, the White House has issued guidance to federal agencies on best practices for collecting this data. For gender identity, that would fall under a two-step approach, where the first question asks about one's sex assigned at birth, and the second asks about one's gender. Even electronic medical systems such as Epic have developed platforms for SOGI data capture that health systems across the world have access to. Still, these developments do not forego the individual training and thought that healthcare professionals must take to stop misgendering trans or non-binary patients or saying micro and macroaggressive comments about sexuality to patients. We must understand that the system we are in was made by people, and thus people are required to respect each other and fix it. Speaking with us today is Dr. Lauren Beach, whose incredible work at the forefront of sexual gender minority health research and quality improvement actions regarding SOGI data have led to several published papers and presentations on these subjects. I'm excited to share with you their efforts to improve the well-being of LGBTQ plus people related to healthcare at the local, state, and national level. Let's begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Equity Podcast. I'm your host, Jalen Brown, and today we have the incredible Dr. Lauren Beach joining us. Dr. Beach is an accomplished attorney, epidemiologist, LGBTQ activist, and member of the queer community. They are assistant professor in the Department of Medical Social Sciences at the Northwestern University School of Medicine, where they direct the research in aging, chronic conditions, and health equity in sexual and gender minority and people with HIV populations lab, or REACH SGM for short. In addition, with Dr. Sue Jordan, they lead the Advocate SGM Health Program in the Institute for Sexual and Gender Minority Health and Wellbeing at Northwestern. Advocate stands for Advancing Opportunities in Clinical and Translational Equity and SGM Health. Their research has focused on the epidemiology of chronic diseases across diverse sexual and gender minority populations and people living with HIV. When they are not actively working to improve the collection of sexual orientation and gender identity data in Northwestern, you may find them speaking at the White House on bisexual health equity and why government-focused efforts on this topic matters. In addition, 
they have significant expertise and leadership in the nonprofit space, having led and co-founded bisexual organizations in Minnesota and Tennessee, such as the Bisexual Organizing Project in Bi Tennessee, or serving on the boards of ones, such as the Minnesota GLBTA Campus Alliance, centered around improving the lives of sexual and gender minorities within Minnesota and Tennessee. Their deep experience advocating for inclusion of bisexual people in research and knowledge of the experiences of sexual and gender minorities in the healthcare system makes them the perfect guest for our topic today. Why most healthcare provider patient discussions on LGBTQ plus health concerns fail. Thank you, Dr. Beach, for joining us. It is such a pleasure to be here today. I'm so excited um, to be here with you, Jalen, and all the listeners. We really appreciate you, and we're going to value your insight as we get into this really interesting discussion. Your background as being trained in the law and in science gives you a unique vantage point for understanding the issues that underlie the health inequities that queer people experience. In recent years, Major rulings have passed, such as the legalization of same-sex marriage nationwide, and significant rulings within states have passed, like gender-affirming care bans and the blocking of adoption by same-gender couples. It seems that in all of these rulings, that legislators and lawmakers may cite science to refute or boost their points. Why is science not enough to shift law? What else is needed? I think this is an extremely important question, and I'm so glad we're kicking off our discussion with this because science alone um, doesn't direct public policy, right? It doesn't uh, govern the hearts and minds of people. And when you think about what's important to the average person day to day, they don't think about necessarily what does science say to do. They think, what do I think is right and wrong? What's important to me? What are my values? And so when you're talking to lawmakers and you're trying to understand, like, what are all the factors that enter into their minds? It's a lot the same. You know, everybody out there, you know, day to day is their own person when they're trying to decide what information to use to make decisions. And lawmakers are going to have, yes, science and scientific articles coming across their desk. But more than maybe more important than that, even to many of them, is what do the people they talk to who are in their districts say and think? What are their beliefs and values? And so science is one part of what can be used to influence public policy, but it's not the only one. And I think it's important for scientists to realize that and also for people to realize about science that, uh, you know, science can't doesn't occur in a vacuum either, right? <laughs> and what, what, right? And what studies people choose to undertake is also affected by you know, hearts, minds, values, um, and also funding priorities are affected by those things that even allows people to be supported to do science. So it's one component in the mix, but it is not the only one. And if you're going to shift the law and, and public policy, you have to recognize the human element um, to inherit in those processes, including the human element of science. And I want to reiterate that hearts and minds piece that you had there because there's a lot to say about what the people have to say, right, regarding these changes. And it's very interesting when you look at bills and you look at what, what they do cite, they may cite science that adds to their point, but it also adds to their point in consideration of what do they think, right, the people want from their area, or what is it that they think that they, their electorate or rather their 
party or whoever wants. And so while science might be used in legislation, it, it definitely seems that there has to be other human elements to that. And there has to be also activism to get people to understand what changes are actually beneficial for our community and what changes are not. So very powerful point. Yeah, I'm so glad you kicked it off because like our humanity is at the basis of everything we study, whether it's the science and public health of LGBTQ health or it's what laws and policies that are enacted that affect our health and the well-being of our populations. It's just we have to start with the human element and then think about um, how does that get built up and, and influence um, all of the power systems that are inherent in our society that also affect health and all these decisions that are being made. You and I both use they, them pronouns. For some of our listeners, they may not know someone who uses these pronouns. More healthcare employers are requiring gender-affirming pronoun usage classes or including gender-affirming pronouns within their training curriculum to improve the treatment of queer people in the workplace. Still, a quarter of respondents to the 2015 U.S. Trans Survey report not visiting a healthcare provider due to fear of being disrespected or mistreated as a transgender person. What do trans and gender diverse people deserve during their healthcare visits? I think that we deserve to be treated with respect and provided high quality healthcare, full stop. I love it. It's a simple question and it gets interesting when we talk about what does that mean? Because historically, right, using they, them to reference patients or asking patients, even in my training, about what is it that they um, go by as their name and using the appropriate language to reference people instead of just using Mr. and Mrs. as maybe we've been trained to do and socialized to do. And I'm assuming that and when you say that they deserve that respect, part that that also counts in terms of for trans and gender diverse people, but also for sexual minorities, speaking on actually asking them about their lives and including their partners in conversations and acknowledging uh, their families and making sure that we're not excluding people because we have a, what I call a cis-normative view heteronormative view of viewing things. I 100% agree with you on all those points about what does respect mean. I think on a very basic level, addressing people by their name is a, a very like core social element of respect. And it's, and you know, it's not like it's hard to do. Whenever you meet a new person, you don't know what their name is. So you have to ask. <laughs> and you usually tell them your name too. It's, you're right. Like the socialization of, of this um, is strong in terms of making assumptions of what maybe honorifics to use, like you said, Mr. Mrs. Et cetera, Miss. But um, but before that, even we want to know somebody's name. And so when you are entering a healthcare situation, you might walk into it. You might come into a room and say, hello, I am Dr. Brown. I'm Dr. Jalen. I'm Dr. Beach. Um, I use they them pronouns. Uh, I am. So happy to be seeing you today. Can you share with me your name and pronouns? You know, it's just a very simple conversation. Like who I am. Here's how I refer to myself. How do you refer to yourself? Like that's a very simple start to a conversation. 
Um, and yes, there's trainings out there to help people who are uncomfortable or unfamiliar with the idea of using pronouns as part of an introduction, but it really is that simple. Hello, I'm Lauren, they, them. So pleased to meet you. What what name would you like me to use and, and, and what pronouns? And would you say about the statistic that I st- stated earlier about a quarter respondent due to um, fear of being disrespected or mistreated, not visiting healthcare provider, would you say that these quarter respondents would probably cite a lack of respect on pronoun usage and also other things? What other things might they be afraid of? Other things that I've seen documented, including by Lambda Legals, One Healthcare Isn't Caring report that came out a number of years back at this point, um, that transgender people and, and gender diverse people reported that providers were afraid to touch them that they were, uh, didn't, they were physically abusive to them in some cases. They refused to treat them in other cases. Um, those are more extreme. I think we sometimes are getting refusal to treat now, not, in, not only because people are thinking, I don't want to see this person in front of me, which is a really extreme version of stigma, but also because they think, I don't know what to do to treat this person. And so sometimes what that means is I don't have, you know, uh, if the person who's transgender is seeking gender affirming health care, like hormones, for example, that person will think, like, I don't know how to prescribe this. I don't know what to do. And so then they say, I'm not the right person for you to see. So I want to point out, though, that in both cases, what you have is the denial of care. And if you are a person seeking health care and you experience multiple denials of care, um, you know, pretty much for any reason, it makes it harder to go back. Why would you go back when, you know, um, you're not certain you're going to even be able to be seen because the provider either doesn't want to see you or doesn't know how to treat you. So I think both of those could come into fear of disrespect or, or literally mistreated could be seen as like harassed or it could be seen as like, I'm not being given high quality health care. I'm being mistreated. Like they gave me, you know, I, you know, the wrong dose of hormones, or they refuse to give me hormones, like you could look at that as a version of mistreatment also. Um, and the other thing that sometimes you see in providers is they assume that every trans person who comes to see them wants gender affirming care when what they might want is care for diabetes or care for asthma or care for literally any other reason anyone ever goes to see a healthcare provider. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> And then they have this focus on the person in front of me is transgender. So like all they can think about suddenly is, is hormones or things like that. And that's really not appropriate. Like when I say high quality healthcare, I mean also the entirety of healthcare that everyone or anyone and everyone might need to use trans people need to use too. And so we need high, you know, trans people, non-binary people need high quality diabetes care. They need high quality heart, you know, hypertension care. They need everything. So, um, and if, yeah, exactly. And so if you come in though, and either nobody feels like they don't want to see you, they don't know how to treat you, or they think every, every treatment you need is about hormones. Like those all are not great experiences. And it also, I want to point out that it also combines with things like structural racism like for people who are black and brown, trans and non-binary people, like it's not, it's like you, it's yes, being transgender and non-binary is part of why you might be experiencing poor quality care, but that also is going to be enhanced or, and can't be disarticulated necessarily from how race 
and specifically like racism might simultaneously be affecting care from like an intersectional point of view. Um, and so it's the big picture. Like there are so many people it, um, who are trans, who, who are black, who are Latinx or Latina, who are uh, disabled, who are, you know, also like sexual minority folks in various ways. Like you cannot take apart those aspects of um, why people might report fear or disrespect from healthcare providers. Right, right, which is our next project. So <laughs> I think it's so multifaceted why people would be afraid. And one of the things that I come back to is the stigma aspect on how we have stigmatized, right, these conversations. It also makes me think about when the HIV epidemic began and the fact that people did not want to touch people who may have contracted HIV um, or tested positive, um, even though that's not how it's transmitted. I've been discussing this with Dr. Thrasher in an earlier episode about how that stigma has settled in and affected the, the lives of people living with HIV. So anyway, big, big discussion. And you have done a lot of work centered around addressing right these disparities and actually getting scientists and non-scientists to listen about the importance of treating trans people with respect when it comes to these health outcomes and so i really want to get into and trans and bi um people as well about these health outcomes so i want to get into that conversation too and You've done a lot of outreach related to advocating for the proper inclusion of bisexual patients in research and prioritizing the better treatment of BIPOS populations in healthcare. This has even included multiple White House invitations to speak on bisexual health specifically. Tell us about that experience for you. Yes. uh, To me, when I start out, I love starting off this conversation about humanity is at the core of all we do. Because when it comes to thinking about how did we go from uh, the research into the White House, it started off with humanity first because it started off with people first. So it it really comes out of this fundamental experience, set of experiences that many people who are bi plus or trans, non-binary, all these different identities. And we talked about stigma and how that attaches to identity and social position a little bit ago. Like that set of experiences that people have personally, they have a set of expertise, they know what it's like. Then uh, people who have those experiences form community organizations, like we talked about in the introduction, Bisexual Organizing Project or Bi Plus Tennessee or any of the other ones that we worked with. And then they start talking about like, well, it's really high. I don't have a great time at the doctor either. You know, like I can't even get to the doctor. I don't have insurance. You know, we start having these conversations. And then that um, by somebody like who myself, like I'm now in public health in the academy, I can start to take those conversations from my own experience and experiences of people with shared identities to me um, and the community stakeholders and the conversations that you have of the voices of the many in the organizational context, bring it into science. And then collectively, the voices and expertise we have from people from the community and from the research studies we do to, to elevate what we're, what's going on in bi plus people's lives. That's how we got into the White House. It was this combination of individual stakeholders, community organizational um, advocacy efforts, and then starting to lift up some of the scientific work that we did 
that got us into the White House spaces to talk about health policy. And there, as far as I know, there's never been an initiative to address LGBTQ health ever uh, that doesn't involve um, people's voices and lived experiences and, and community advocates coming to the front to get in to talk to our leadership to demand change. Because, yeah, and, and why do we need change? Because we have a public health emergency that affects the health of bisexual people that is totally unaddressed because there is no care towards our people, our communities that has been put forward by the administration to address it. The data that we have as researchers, as public health practitioner, practitioners and clinicians, um, is like your own background um, as clinician, can tell the stories that say we need action now, but unless the government and other stakeholders help take that action, we will continue to languish. And so what is that like? It To me, going to talk to people in public health leadership positions in, in uh, the Department of Health and Human Services within the White House and within other public health agencies or community-based organizations or health systems, it feels like much needed change. And the change that we bring and how it comes to fruition is through our own expertise and experiences, but also because we demand the care that we are entitled to um, and we love ourselves and our communities. So we push for what will bring us joy. That's what it feels like. I cannot ask for a better response. It sounds like joy. Yes, joy. And and also it sounds full circle, right? Because the community, right, has been a central part of expressing what needs to be changed. And it's the partnerships involved with the community and the science and the lawmakers and whoever else that really gets to there. And then at the end, right, you have the community actually being there for the presentation of the findings and the vocalization of the measures needed for change. That's what community work, grassroots work is. I love that you have been able to go multiple times to that level of our government to speak on such a important and um, valuable topic um, because yes, bisexual health is, is important as the health of all Americans and we need to be clear about what that is and what that means. More specifically, during those discussions, how do you think your time being there has impacted the well-being of LGBTQ plus Americans? I think that we have a lot of work to do. Um, many, so a, a, a meeting that we might have once a year helps us get visibility to the need to address the health of bisexual Americans when you go to the White House level. So the fact that we did get some press coverage so that people were aware of it um, and that we also have now a website by Plus Organizing US um, that has our call to action that we presented at the government, which is publicly available. And then we also, yeah, and we created a, a sort of a policy committee, or we have created a policy committee that meets on a biweekly basis to discuss how do we operationalize the call to action that we put forward to the Biden administration in September of 2022. And we've been meeting ever since that White House visit. And the beautiful thing is that we've called in so many more voices who are at the table to start digging into the deep work that's needed 
to continue to advocate for structural change so that we do see those changes that are going to benefit the lives and the health of LGBTQ plus Americans. In this, this case, we're talking specifically about the focus on bi plus Americans. Um, and so it requires like the, the meetings are the figurehead that helps us boost the signal and the change work is, is never ending. <laughs> You're always trying to do better. You're trying to do better. And so uh, I think that what we're finding some examples now, um, there's people from different organizations around the country, like Still Bisexual, for example, has a partnership with the LA um, County, uh, Los Angeles out there in the county um, to partner on like advising on mental health disparities. And so they're bringing a bi, a bi plus voice to that table and receiving some funding to do some community outreach around mental health in that context. Some of the work that our own lab that has done with Howard Brown Health to, um, to design and start to implement a bisexual health training for um, new providers there and to, as a part of provider onboarding and trying to seek additional grant funding to be able to provide better, you know, to train providers to understand how to provide better care to these populations um, is another example. Um, but right now we still don't have a national example that I can say here is a national model that has been definitively scaled and implemented nationwide, but we will get there. I have no doubt, but we are not at that stage yet. We are still like, having the meetings, putting this on the agenda, trying to get more recognition so we can increase funding and awareness. And then we have our demo projects in different community organizations and partners and research labs around the country that's starting to try to tackle this and think about how we, how we can create, um, I would say interventions that aren't just about like one person at a time individually, but are structural change and health systems interventions, for example. Um, that can create that change that we need. So it sounds like there's ongoing efforts right now. You said California is one state as an example. And then in the future, getting that national model for bisexual health. And what does that look like implemented in practice? Awesome. Yes. Beyond just that specific topic, and you're very busy, <laughs> uh, you've also focused a lot of your research efforts on the collection of sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity, or SOGI data, proper reporting of this data within the electronic medical record at Northwestern and Vanderbilt. Your work at the Robert H. Lurie Cancer Center here at Northwestern focuses on SOGI data collection and cancer quality. Let me repeat that acronym because some people may not be familiar with it, but that is sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity, or SOGI data. Why is the collection of SOGI data important for patients, particularly for patients with cancer? Yes, I think this is a really important thing to put out there that the collection of this information, even though we're talking about it at the systems level, helps and should help inform and direct patient care experiences. So if you're thinking about why I'm asked about sex and gender and anatomy in the cancer context, some of the most salient examples there might be for cancer screenings. So what body parts does somebody have? And understanding like somebody's anatomy and uh, what, what that is is going to dictate, do they need prostate cancer screenings? Do they need cervical cancer screenings? Do they need breast cancer screenings? And so to start to get there, you know, so socially, the social aspect comes in, right? You don't 
ask somebody to, you don't walk up to the reception desk and have the, the person ask you, uh, what body parts do you have? Do you have a penis, a vagina, a cervix, a prostate? Like that's not how you talk in our society. So you instead have people fill out questions about their, or ask questions and you know, fill out questions about their sex and gender, and then have the provider follow up to ask them about their anatomy, make sure that information is documented so that they get the preventive screenings they need. And also like if you are having a patient with cancer, um, you know, it's important to understand like who their support system is too. And so if you're thinking about sexual orientation, you brought up families, that's so important. Like, you know, whether it's biological or chosen family, people don't get through cancer alone typically, you know? So you need to be able as a provider to be aware of your patient's support network as a form of patient care um, wraparound services, right? So that um, the person, yeah. So, and don't, you don't accidentally refer to the patient's uh, spouse as their sister, you know, uh, <laughs> right. And, you know, and understand the, the, and respect the families of the patients that come in to see you. Like that's an important aspect in general, but it's really important. We know from the science uh, and social support and cancer care in particular. Neglecting family members as well. There's been some great work done um by a psychologist out of Canada I forget his name but he has done work on that as well and looking at cancer care and the treatment of families and individuals and how important it is during that time when it is so stressful and it is so um testing right of a um of a family's ability that the healthcare team also makes it easier for families to be together um, and so that's just one point about that, but also speaking to providers, like you said, again, today's topic is why do these discussions fail? And they can fail because you're not screening about um, anatomy. You're not asking people about um, their exposures, maybe when it comes to sexual health. You're not um, actually being specific. And that's so important. Um, so I'm glad that we're talking about that too. What types of measures relevant to SOGI data collection and reporting are missing from our healthcare systems that detriment the experiences of our LGBTQ plus patients? So many health systems don't have any structured capacity to ask about sex assigned at birth, sexual orientation, whether that be sexual identity or sexual behavior or gender identity. They only would have data and uh, data capture fields in place to ask somebody's legal name and the sex that appears on their on their identification documents. And they they wouldn't have any of the other aspects. Um, they may not even be able to add preferred name. You know, let, you know, so many people for so many reasons don't use the first name that they have on their identification document. Maybe they go by their middle name. Maybe they have a nickname. Like this is a this is a issue that affects everybody um, when it comes to patient care, and so like a lot of these health systems, they may not have any fields that at all for pronouns, preferred name, sex at birth, gender identity, sexual orientation, or let alone an anatomy inventory. And so there's still this massive gap for even being able to collect any of this information in many many health systems right now in the U.S. Yes. Yes, there's a major gap. And you and I both know that that's the work of a lot of researchers in this space. 
And you have done work with the Soji Collect project and the Reach Lab. Based on your experiences with talking with people at the hospital regarding this process of collecting Soji data, do you have any evidence-based recommendations regarding how patients can have affirming experiences reporting their SOGI information in the healthcare setting? Yes, definitely. I think that the Fenway Institute is the leader in this realm in terms of providing the evidence-based recommendations for how a healthcare visit should go in terms of how um, not just a direct like doctor, but also people like medical assistants, nurses, patient service representatives, like the 360 view of how to have a, a high quality experience um, in terms of incorporation of SOGI. They have some outstanding toolkits on their websites, uh, including the Do Ask, Do Tell toolkit and the um, Ready, Set, Go toolkit. That's really for healthcare leadership if they're trying to understand how to get started to even add these data elements into their electronic medical record. Um, and we have a lot of science that's been done about showing it's okay to ask some evidence-based recommendations. I would say having name and pronouns at registration is a really best practice. And then um, having patients fill out their own information, ideally before a visit, like either like an electronic portal um, or they're doing a paper form. Maybe you have both options as a health system to collect the sexual orientation, gender identity, sex assigned at birth information from them. Um, and, and then that the other really important evidence-based practice is clinicians need to use the information patients tell them. <laughs> I know that sounds really obvious, but it's not necessarily obvious because if you're going to make sure, you know, clinicians see the information, the electronic medical record has to be structured so they can see the information that patients have communicated about themselves. Um, and so you really need to think about, you know, uh, what, what the layout is in your EMR so that that information can be used and affirm the patient um, for who they are and provide. I would recommend, so different health systems have different approaches here. I think most people, including myself, are advocating to try to get that updated once a year. Updated as frequently as you update, as you have your patients update any other demographic information. And um, they sometimes, health systems are even having patients, like a pop-up question it might be if it's done digitally, has any of your personal information changed? And then you can like hit yes if it has, and then it brings up the entire details about me section, whereby patients could enter in any of the SOGI information as well as insurance, address, phone number, marital status, like literally anything about them could be updated. Certainly. And there's a concept in there about not just the initiation and registration of that data, but the ability to continually update it. We know that there's been some progress with Epic per se for making that happen, but still, we still need to actually have the guidelines for updating this information regularly and making sure that people feel comfortable doing it, um, training the people to get that information, which is what you're um, doing. So such such important work. Um, thank you. And I wanted to also add in a little bit before I switch to um, involvements outside of your scientific endeavors, that you've previously worked in the South, and I'm from the South, I'm from Georgia. As we know, many differences exist in the laws facilitating access to care and positive healthcare experiences for queer patients in these areas. What have you observed regarding the relationships between translating the findings of your research to action. 
between the institutions that you worked in within these areas? Yeah, I think this is really key because it links the policy environment into the healthcare, you know, literally into the patient room, right? And also like which patients are even to show up in that room are affected by policy um, and, and health policy. So what I would say at Vanderbilt, um, it's a private healthcare academic medical center. Um, and so it might, while it cannot be shielded from laws that would apply to private businesses in a state like Tennessee, um, sorry, it's, so it's shielded from that. It's not going to be shielded from the general social stigma of the intention of those laws, which is to stigmatize certain populations. You know, we're talking about LGBT populations and, but it does get insulated. It's not a state governmentally run agency. So you wind up being sheltered a little bit from some of the things that might otherwise really be uh, in full effect, if you will. Um, but I would still say, even with that being the case, that um, when you've got laws that would say that, you know, healthcare, healthcare providers can basically conscientiously object and not provide in mental health care, for example, to LGBT patients because they don't feel they don't agree with their lifestyles, essentially, but the like, legislation will say to some effect um, that has a negative effect on patients being trusting providers that they're like, I don't want to run the risk that I go to try to find a mental health care provider or a health care provider who conscientiously, conscientiously objects to my existence. And so you have to do work that much harder then in that context to point out the providers that will see patients. You have to go out of your way to be that much more welcoming. I think you want to, in that case, like something Vanderbilt did was to put down a way in the Vanderbilt website when patients were seeking providers to say, like, I really want to see LGBT patients and they can filter by that on the website and, and find their providers who they most would want to see. Um, but it, you know, I feel like the other thing that happens when a community is under attack, like it is in, in many of the Southern states with the policies that legislatures are passing, the laws that they're passing these days, the, the, the community response, because I don't, I don't want to make it all. So like, there are, to the best of my knowledge, most major cities and in many places across the United States, like there are community lists of providers that people will say, like, especially this is true in trans communities about people seeking gender affirming care. The community itself will maintain lists and say, I had a great experience with this provider. I did not have a great experience with that provider. And like, if you know, people will kind of get in touch sometimes in community meetings, sometimes via like social media, sometimes on signal, like they're passing around lists. Um, and the community itself is responding and there should be support in these states, especially people should be pouring dollars into the community groups and networks that are figuring out who's safe to see. Like it has to be both, I think, um, because of the extreme extremity of the attacks that we've seen, that we've got to directly pour money into the community and to the support networks in that well, in that frame, as well as training the providers and the health systems to do better and indicate who is welcoming. So I think that that's so important for people living in the South where these, you know, laws are really, you know, attacking um, their well-being or in, even here in like rural areas, for example, like if you don't have contact with the Northwestern or Vanderbilt, like, are you able to form community and are you able to build up the resources so that, you know, you all can 
have strength in numbers and hopefully be able to connect um, to gender affirming care in a way that is, you know, maybe not the Northwestern or Vanderbilt way, but is like a way for those people where they live or what is most easy for them to access for them to get to. Um, yeah, this is a this is a very interesting conversation, and I uh, wanted to get to also the nonprofit work that you've done because I think that's so cool as well. So a lot of your nonprofit work has also centered on equity, diversity, and inclusion efforts, especially related to bisexual populations. With bisexual organizing project and Bi Tennessee being two great examples, it's great to talk to you as someone who, with experience in the nonprofit space since these organizations are often rooted in fixing social injustices that have not readily been addressed by governments or other powerful institutions. What intentions did you have being part of these two organizations? I wanted people to know that they're not alone. And I believe that loneliness and stigma enhances the feeling that you're the only person in the world who might be suffering like you suffer, especially if you're part of an invisible minority group. Because so sexual orientation or often gender identity too, you don't necessarily know um, when you first meet somebody just by looking at them, like you can't tell their sexual orientation or their gender um, identity. And so, you know, with that being the situation, then people need to be, figure out how to find other people like them. And if you feel like there's nobody else like you, it can, and and yet you're all you get from the the larger society is that people like you are bad. Um, it's you know you can internalize that, and it really can be hurting your soul because with biphobia in particular, it's really really weird how biphobia works. People with you know in terms of biphobia, you'll get all these messages: bisexual people are vectors of disease. They can't be trusted. They're all cheaters. They're hypersexualized. They, you know, have uh, like they need to have multiple partners to even be valid and exist. But then also they can't be monogamous. Like and there's like there's this conflation of like all bisexual people would be non-monogamous as opposed to like non-monogamy is something any of person of sexual orientation can be, you know. <laughs> and so you've got all that instead of information. And at the same time, you hear all of those messages. The other one that's perhaps the loudest is bisexual people don't exist. <laughs> so bisexual people are fake, but here's all this bad information about them. And you're like, it's enough to like, it's a, it, it twists up your mind. <laughs> so <I'm gonna> say. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so how, if they don't exist, do you know all these things about bisexual people then? Like, why would you say all these things? And then P.S. you're not real. Like, are you okay? Are you okay? Like <laughs> person saying this to me, because you just, you know, on one hand, I'm all these things. On the other hand, I'm not real. So are you talking to a ghost? Like, I don't understand, you know, like I just, you know, who, who are you talking about? And so, but that really is a really isolating thing because no matter where you turn, um, you're, you're doubting your own existence and you're doubting your own reality. And if you're told your reality isn't valid, um, how that is so damaging. Uh, it's hard to really emphasize enough how uh, tremendously psychological, the psychological consequences of that. And so these groups, eliminate that 
and they eliminate that lie that we don't exist and that there's no one else like you. Like you can find, you know, heal, there's, he, there's healing that's present in community just by knowing you're not alone and by understanding the shared humanity that we have and like building community builds people power. And it, it's, it builds, uh, it actually shows you reality for what it really is. Like there's all these people, um, there are millions, like 15 million bisexual Americans by my best count alone, just to talk about US folks. That's a lot of people. And so, and, and yet if you are as a bisexual, like what I, my experience has been as a bisexual person going into an LGBT organization, I've definitely been told a number of times that I don't belong there because bisexual people aren't real. Like the biphobia that I was just talking about, it doesn't just exist in the general society. It exists in LGBT community organizations too. And so we have to build our own space that because that space is life-saving, literally. Like, why do I keep on, like, why with Bisexual Organizing Project was I really excited to host, help organize the Bisexual Empowerment Conference, the Uniting Supportive Experience, or the Because Conference? It's because people, literally, the evaluations we would put up after the conference, I there was never a year somebody didn't say I was going to take my own life, and now I didn't. Literally, it's at that level. It's life-saving work to build com- to build community connection and that community connection is is also a source of you know like i said of joy because we can celebrate we can we can see ourselves in each other we can build a community understanding in which we are real and we can thrive and and, and it's from that space of empowerment that we can move forward and demand that the government and the institutions you talked about ignoring us treat us with care yeah denying the existence of people what i wanted to follow up and say what are the websites that people can read more about these organizations yes i can definitely share those um i used to so bisexual organizing project actually started in the 1990s um they updated their website so i've got to send that it used to be bioorg project um Let's see. Now it's www.bisexualorganizingproject, all spelled out, .org. Um, Bi-plus Tennessee was kind of more like something that we were getting going on Facebook um, and meetup.com because it was a much newer. So meetup, the meetup organization um, is still active. It's just bi-tennessee and you can find it on meetup. There's 634 members and counting. It's, it's, it's grown since we started it back in like 2015, 16, I think it's still there. Awesome. Awesome. And obviously room for way more people as well. Um, given the numbers that you cited, millions of bypass Americans, um, even outside of Tennessee, but also within Tennessee, probably like, yeah, a lot more than that 600. So that's, you know, a great that you're starting at that number right now and that it's it's continuing to grow there's also by plus georgia which is in atlanta because you mentioned you're from the atlanta area so there is a group there so and that's just www yeah org by plus georgia so there's you know there's by groups popping up everywhere (laughs) i'm gonna repeat them at the end of the conversation for us because i think i want I think people will definitely want to follow up on those organizations. This will be our last topic for our awesome discussion. You do a lot of work speaking with quality improvement change makers in the healthcare institution space. 
or AKA people with the ability to make large scale changes to how common practices and procedures regarding inclusion of LGBTQ plus people should be followed. This is outside of your work, directing the daily operations of your lab and your work as a scientist trying to disseminate research. A Nature article published this year detailed the backlash against two climate change science activists who following a protest were barred from presenting at the American Geophysical Union Conference and had cases of professional misconduct opened against them. Is it overstepping for researchers to be engaged as activists and or healthcare providers to be engaged as activists? Definitely not, because if you care at all, if like you're a researcher who does public health work, then it's important. Actually, public health policy is a part of public health. And so if you're trying to think about engaging in public health policy and your data would say that I have a group of people, LGBTQIA plus people, who are having worse health than other members of the public, I think it's your, I see it as an ethical imperative to try to change uh, those poor health outcomes. Like that's why we have public health. If public health doesn't exist just to like document numbers, it exists to actually improve public health, which is actually the, the ultimate charge of our government is health and wellness is included. And even, you know, if we look at, you know, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, like, and you look at like these documents that are foundational to our society and how it's organized, even under the law, we are supposed to be, we are supposed to be promoting health. Healthcare workers have a job and ethical imperative to do no harm. And that means treating their patients appropriately. And so if you ask me like about, do I see a distinction between, um, science and advocacy? No, like public health and healthcare. The point of this is to advocate and advance health and wellness and to provide it clinically to patients if you're a clinician. And so if people say to me, oh, Lauren, you're an activist. Oh, like it's like the whole like LGBT, like health policy stuff that you do, like you're off the rails. I'd be like, nope, that's what the purpose of the field is. There is a huge need for us to be involved in conversations on media and writing, discussing the experiences that you've had, but also other researchers and scientists have had in this space. And what does that mean for the advancement of the well-being of LGBTQ people? So I definitely appreciate your response. Um, And another example is we even have doctors in the Black Lives Matter movement also being vocal outside of their hospitals and people taking time off their shifts to help. And these are, you know, our frontline workers and they recognize the duplicity that's involved in caring for patients who are affected, right, by this movement, but also saying we need to speak up for these patients as well. Yeah, I mean, if, if uh, you as a doctor are going to say uh, my patients, you know, wouldn't it be great if the patients came to you because they wanted to continue to stay healthy and well? Isn't shouldn't that be the purpose really that we would want to strive healthcare to serve instead of having to go out into the streets and say, my patients are coming to me um, and the effects of structural racism mean that they don't have access to income, they don't have access to food. They don't have access in a just way even to, you know, coming to me to see me as a provider as much as they should. They don't have access to medications. They don't have access, you know, and, and we're living in streets where 
gun and gun violence is endemic and like they're coming because of that. Like, wouldn't it be, you know, healthcare providers, yes, they treat this, they treat illness and sick, you know, sickness, but they also like a lot of the, what you're talking about is realizing that the social ills produce the ills and the sickness in our bodies. And, and if, you know, that you can't really make a distinction, with, you know, between social wellness and community health and then the health of individuals, because the health of individuals makes up the health of communities, right? So it's like, if you recognize that there shouldn't, you know, yes, they're taking the time to go into the streets like people are to, to advocate, but it ultimately depends on the sphere of what you think the meaning is of do no harm. What have been some notable moments of activism related to LGBTQ plus health equity that you've been involved in? I think definitely working, going to the White House has been a highlight, obviously, and trying to just even make there be part of a bisexual specific health policy and healthcare change agenda. Uh, and like continuing, like that's a project I've been working on. I think my entire, like I've been out as bisexual for 25 years and doing bisexual specific work as an activist for 15. Research is more like, you know, five. Um, <laughs> and so to, to me, like also just like being able, why is the research time shorter? It's because like there wasn't really like NIH or HHS attention before to the health of LGBT populations until like 2014, 2013 is when that started to open up more. Um, a lot of people would say it's the Institute of Medicine report from 2011, now they call it National Academies, um, that really opened it up more to like get the connection between the community and the and scientists and the government to get me kickstarted. I think even just the fact that we see LGBT research uh, as something that the, is being invested in and being connected, as you said, into public policy discussions. Like, I feel like I'm a part of the overarching project that is that thing. And then I'm, I'm part of a group of people who are helping to lead those efforts. Um, and so like, and then we are able to take like the science that we do and directly push for change. Like those are like the key accomplishments um, that I would want to highlight that I'm part of a like the community project to advance. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to talk with you. And this has been an amazing conversation. Again, I am going to, after this conversation, explain some more topics for people who may not be familiar and also just put out those websites that you talked about that are so important for people maybe living in these um, states, maybe Tennessee or just otherwise elsewhere for them to know that there are community organizations that exist for them. So I appreciate your time. Alrighty. As I'm sure you've gathered from this episode, humanity is at the core of our interactions. And that's what we require to ensure LGBTQ plus people are being treated fairly in healthcare spaces. As a sexual gender minority researcher myself, I see the advancement that's been made to expand SOGI data collection, but there are parts all over the world where collection of this information still doesn't happen or is even criminalized. Creating spaces in healthcare where LGBTQ people feel welcome and seen through asking the right questions and offering the appropriate trainings are the only way we can get to equitable inclusion. If you're a queer person who's felt disrespected in the healthcare environment, I apologize. You deserve the bare minimum of respect especially among the barriers and stressors outside of a healthcare visit. Lowering health disparities starts with making sure LGBTQ people want to come to a healthcare office in the first place. 
Achieving this reality means queer people are included in the vision for health equity for all. Thank you for listening in. If you would like to learn more about programming and resources at Bisexual Organizing Project, visit bisexualorganizingproject.org. To learn more about the Chicago Bisexual Health Task Force, visit the Facebook page, facebook.com slash shy, that is C-H-I-B-I health F. As well, if you'd like to find a provider who is LGBTQ plus affirming, go to the website of the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association at glma.org slash find underscore a underscore provider dot ph and please click on the link in the bio of this episode to see an infographic for healthcare professionals who want to ensure respectful care for LGBTQ plus patients. Let's continue to push the conversation more on Instagram at Equity Podcast or on Twitter at Equity Pod. I'm looking forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take care until then.